looking for the Lord to come at the rapture. There's no prophecy that needs to be fulfilled for the coming of the Lord in the air. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. Uh, Paul the Apostle was looking for the rapture. They were looking for it 2,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 500 years ago, 100 years ago. We're still looking for it today. That's why the scoffers say, where's the promise of his coming? You Bible-thumping, independent, fundamental Baptists have been preaching this for years. Well, where is he? That's 2 Peter chapter 3. Well, the Lord's coming. It may be tonight, it may be next year, it may be 10 years from now, but we know he's coming. No prophecy needs to be fulfilled for that. The rapture takes place, and it is pre-tribulational. And anybody wants to talk to me about that later, I will be glad to sit down with you. And I believe, prove to you biblically, that the rapture comes before the tribulation period. That's what I taught this morning to those online pastors and missionaries that we were with from 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock this morning. I was giving them a brief treatise on that subject because I only had 10 to 15 minutes. I don't know if that's what I took. I didn't time myself. But, but just check it out, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Verse 1, are gathering together unto him. Verse 3, the Antichrist cannot be revealed until there is a departure. What is the departure? It's in verse 1, are gathering together unto him. And we gave other verses, and I mentioned, of course, that the church is not mentioned at all from Revelation chapter 4 right through chapter 22. We have the church mentioned 19 times in Revelation 1 through 3. We have the church mentioned once in Revelation 22, 16. But between chapters 4 and 22, there's absolutely no mention of the church. He said, well, the saints, who are the saints in Revelation 12? Very clearly, those are Israel. Israel, not the church. We talk about the, the tribulation being the, the time of Jacob's trouble, not the church's trouble. We talked about uh, uh, Daniel 9, 24 through 27, where, where 70 weeks are appointed upon thy people, Daniel, and upon thy holy city, not the church. The tribulation period is for Israel, is to purify and prepare Israel for the coming Messiah, for their king, just like the ministry of John the Baptist preparing a nation to receive their coming king, their Messiah. But John's baptism was a baptism of repentance to prepare a nation. The nation rejected Messiah, so it was postponed until a future event, which we're still waiting for. But the, but the two witnesses in Revelation 11 will have the exact same purpose in the tribulation period that John the Baptist had when he was here before the first coming, or the first inauguration of the Messiah. And so, my, 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 if, our, if the church was going through a mid-tribulation view, or a pre-wrath view, or even a post-trib view, why is there absolutely no mention of that in the epistles that Paul wrote to the churches? Why is there no mention of it in other writings of the New Testament? Surely event that important, that climactic, that Devastating, there'd be some instruction, some admonition, some exhortation, some kind of uh, mission or whatever we have in the tribulation. It is not there because we're not going to be there. Does the rapture begin the tribulation period? Yes or no? You know I'm setting you up so you're quiet. The rapture does not begin the tribulation period. 
The tribulation period of the 70th week of Daniel begins with a covenant that is confirmed in Daniel 9, 24, 25 through 27. The Antichrist, who at that time is ruling over the revived Roman Empire, Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, the old Roman Empire, the nations involved in that will reassemble, and it's happened. 27 nations make up the European Union, the same nations that made up the Roman Empire in the first century. And so the European Union is the revived Roman Empire, and the Antichrist will rise as the president of the EU. They elect a president every five years, and he will be one of those. He could very much be alive on the earth today. And the Gog-Magog War, which I did not have time for this week, if you've noticed this revival evangelistic conference is prophecy, but with a evangelistic and more of a revival bent to it. My prophecy conference number one is a lot of information. It's a lot of current events. It's a lot of statistics that is not as evangelistic and reviving. And so this time God led us to do what we're doing. But we usually spend a whole night on the Gog-Magog War of Ezekiel 38 and 39 because it is so important. There's more information about that war than there is about the Battle of Armageddon. And that war, I believe, takes place right after the rapture, but before the tribulation. All right, from the rapture of the church to the confirming of the covenant in Daniel 9. How much time is there between the rapture and the confirming of the covenant? We don't know that. It could be weeks, it could be months. I do not think it will be years. But in that time frame, between the rapture of the church and the confirming of the covenant is the Gog-Magog War. And there's reasons for that. When I give you that message, I give you the three questions and four answers. And I seek to prove to you biblically that that's when that war takes place. Because everything in the Bible, everything prophetic has to fit I can't tell you how many books I read and how many conferences I view where they leave things dangling. God is not a dangler. Everything has to fit. And it fits perfectly with the Gog-Magog war right after the rapture, but before the tribulation. If it was before the rapture, then the rapture is no longer imminent. We would know that Christ is coming. It was before the tribulation period, then we wouldn't have the results of that war, which is what brings on the confirming of the covenant. The results of the Gog-Magog War of Ezekiel 38 and 39 are what brings Israel to the Antichrist. He's not known yet as the Antichrist. In Europe, confirming that covenant. The exciting things of prophecy today are the fact that Russia and Turkey and Iran are now in a coalition have you seen that in the news? Did you know last Wednesday, the president of Iran went to Turkey and met with the president of Turkey for one purpose. They even revealed it publicly what the purpose was, the destruction and the total annihilation of Israel. <laughs> Russia, Iran, and Turkey, along with Libya and Sudan, are going to be the nations that come against Israel in the Gog-Magog War of Ezekiel 38 and 39. You're seeing it. You're seeing its preparation. You're seeing its formation. Lift up your heads for your redemption. Draw up nigh, brethren. Now tonight we'll have another 
emphasis of prophecy, but before we do, I think we better hear from my wife, amen? She's been patiently sitting there waiting, and so let's listen to this amazing recitation called Enter In, and listen for some key words, because you're going to hear it in the message tonight, all right? Nothing chills the heart of man like passing through death's gate. But to him who enters daily, death's a glorious state. Dearly beloved, we have gathered here to be a holy bride and daily cross death's threshold to the holy life inside. Enter in, surrender to the Spirit's call to die and enter in. Enter in, find peace within, the holy life awaits you. Enter in, his love endured the cross, despising all the shame. That afternoon when midnight fell, his suffering cleared my name. And that sin-swept hill became the open door to paradise because he paid so high a price. He paid much too high a price for me, his tears, his pain, his blood, to have my soul just stirred and touched, but never truly changed. He deserves a fiery love that won't ignore his sacrifice because he paid so high a price. His suffering inspires my heart to rise above the sin and all the earthly vanities that seek to draw me in. I want to tell a jaded world of love that truly changed my life, a love that paid so high a price. Still, conflict rages deep within my soul. The spirit wars against my flesh and struggles for control. My only hope is full surrender. So with each borrowed breath, I inhale the Spirit's will for me to die a deeper death. If mourners would lament, let them weep for those alive. For only as self-will is killed can my soul survive. Enter in, surrender to the Spirit's call to die and enter in. Enter in, find peace within, the holy life awaits you, abundant life is waiting for you. Enter in, he paid much too high a price for you, his tears, his pain, his blood. To have your soul just stirred and touched, 
but never truly changed. He deserves a fiery love that won't ignore his sacrifice because he paid much too high a price. Enter in. Surrender to the Spirit's call to die and enter in. Death to self is very written. Dying to self, living the crucified life, entering into that joy and that lifestyle. Father in heaven, we thank you that we have gathered here to be a holy bride, to daily cross death's threshold, to the holy life inside, Lord, I don't know the hearts of those seated before me, but you certainly do. We welcome you to our service. We pray, Lord, that the singing and the giving and all that has transpired thus far has been pleasing to you. That our hearts are worshiping aright. And Lord, that you would now receive these things. And as the word of God is preached, we pray the spirit of God would move around this room. We pray, Lord, that if there's anyone who's not yet born again, is not yet saved or received Christ as Savior, converted in these synonyms, we pray tonight you put your finger on them, touch their heart, convict them of their sin, and convince them that the message of Jesus Christ is real and true, that he really did die for them and shed his blood for their forgiveness and rise again victorious over the grave and is alive forevermore, and offers freely, by His grace, the gift of eternal life. So bless us and join our hearts together now around the Bible, the Word of God. I pray we'd follow along, keep, help us to pay attention and to learn and grow, and we'll meet, and we trust you'll meet every spiritual need in Christ's name. Amen and amen. You know, everybody loves a wedding. How many of you have been to a wedding? Look at that. Is there anybody who's never been to a wedding? <laughs> How many of you are married? <laughs> How many of you are glad you're married? Not halfway, brother, all the way up. Not, there you go. <laughs> yes, two hands. I love marriage. We've been married 45 years. <laughs> and I'm either a satisfied customer or misery loves company. I, well, anyway, we... Uh, we, 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 we like to see everybody get married. You know, we were married January 20th, 1979, 45 years ago now, and our three children are all married, and I have either performed the ceremony or did most of the ceremony for all three of my children. That was a great day when my eldest daughter got married and presented her to Joseph Level for, for, for marriage, and it was an exciting time when I took uh, my daughter's hand out of my pocket and put it into Joe's pocket. That was, a, that was momentous. <laughs> but here, here's, a, here's a picture of our wedding, Grace and myself. Now, you can look at this later. I know it's a, a fur piece away for some of you to see that. But one of the things you're going to notice, we look like kids. Maybe your wedding picture's like that. And look at that loving eyes between each other and my beautiful bride and, and myself, I was 23 years old, she was 22, we looked like we were about 18 and 16, and so that is a great, great event. 
Next to salvation, it was the greatest event in my life and the greatest life-changing since being saved and born again. But there's the wedding that's coming. There's a wedding that is coming, which is the greatest wedding of all of history. It is the wedding of the Lord Jesus Christ and His church. I'm taking you to Revelation chapter 19. We're just going to look at three verses tonight. Revelation 19, the marriage of the Lamb and the marriage supper of the Lamb. And again, I mentioned I like that there's a supper because we're going to eat in heaven. Did you know that? Now, whether we would actually need to or not in a glorified body is beside the point. I like eating. We went to sushi today, California sushi. What an amazing feast that was. I love sushi, and we had a wonderful pile of it there. And I like the words of one of my great friends, his wife, said, my hobby is eating. You know, some people ski, some people read books, some do hiking, but her hobby is eating. <laughs> I kind of like that. You know, we know the Lord Jesus ate in his glorified body after he rose again from the dead there in Luke 24, 41, 43. He appears to the apostles in his resurrected, glorified body. They're all frightened and thinks it's some kind of spirit. He said, a spirit has not flesh and bones like I have. Have you any meat? And they gave him a piece of honeycomb and a fish. Jesus ate meat, by the way. He ate, we know he ate lamb, and we know he ate fish. So, you know, the vegans, you, you do your thing. <laughs> but listen... He ate that fish, and he ate that honeycomb, and it didn't go on the, on the ground. It, it stayed in there. I'm glad. So you have the marriage, and then you have the marriage supper. But let's read it, Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. This is prophecy. After the rapture of the church, we believe in the context of what I gave you last night. So we dealt with the judgment seat of Christ and the five crowns. The judgment seat of Christ takes place right after the rapture. Sometime in that heavenly abode as we're there, we'll have the marriage between Jesus Christ and the church. And then we will come with Christ back to the earth. A lot of times you think about, I'm going to die and go to heaven forever. Uh... Yes and no. You're going to come back with the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're going to rule and reign with him for a thousand years on this earth. Revelation 20, verses 4 and 6. And your faithfulness now to the Lord Jesus is determining your position in that kingdom. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. If you're not faithful, you're not obedient. You don't love the Lord and serve Him because you love Him. You aren't ruling or reigning over anything. 
you might come back as the street sweeper of Burnaby. <laughs> there are criteria for those who are going to rule and reign. And I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm not trying to be a, a preacher that hangs over this pole with a big, big stick to whap you and get you in line. The Lord doesn't do that, and I don't do that. The Lord loves you, and he meets you where you are. And we learn tonight there's a difference between our position in Christ and our practice in Christ. But listen, we're going to come back to the earth and rule and reign. We don't have many millennial songs in the hymn book except for joy to the world. You are the first church I've ever been in that recognizes that the Christmas carol, joy to the world, doesn't have anything to do with the first coming. It has everything to do with the second coming. It's a millennial song, not a Christmas song, but I'm glad you all know that. So while we're in heaven and before we come back with the Lord as he sets up his kingdom, and what a day that's going to be. Oh, the Lord Jesus Christ defeats the armies of Antichrist at the Battle of Armageddon. And he throws the Antichrist and the false prophet into the lake of fire alive. And then he sets down upon the Mount of Olives and splits it wide open and then heads west across the Kidron Valley into and through the Eastern Gate, which is called the Golden Gate, which is presently shut. Have you seen the pictures of Jerusalem and the wall around Jerusalem and the Golden Gate or the Eastern Gate is completely shut. It's plugged up. Some have tried to open it, and God always miraculously intervenes. Why? Because, I, because Ezekiel 44, 1 through 3, is a prophecy about that shut gate. That gate will remain shut until Messiah goes through it. It'll open for him and only for him when he comes again to the earth. And he will go through that eastern gate and golden gate, and he will set up his kingdom. The Lord Jesus Christ will sit on a literal throne and he will be the king of all the world. Right now Israel's the tail, but Isaiah says Israel will one day be the head. And Israel's borders that were originally given will be realized far greater than the borders of Israel today. And the Lord Jesus will rule and reign from Jerusalem. If you lay the world out flat... Jerusalem is the absolute center of the earth. Now, is that coincidental? Is there a God in heaven? Absolute center of the earth is Jerusalem. And the Lord Jesus will rule and reign over the peoples of the millennial kingdom. Everybody who enters the millennial kingdom is saved. You remember in the tribulation period, Two-thirds of the world's population is killed. And so what about the third that survives? They must go through the judgment of the nations, which we call the goat and sheep judgment. And there's criteria by which they are judged. And those that survive that judgment by the Lord Jesus in Matthew 25, they enter into the kingdom age in saved mortal, physical body. They are saved, but they enter the kingdom in physical, mortal bodies. We are in the millennial kingdom with glorified bodies. We rule and reign with Christ in glorified bodies that we received when we were raptured or when we were resurrected. 
and we reign and rule over these people. Again, I could give you full messages on the millennial kingdom. It's fascinating. It's amazing how the lifespans will return to what they were before the Noahic flood, and people will live to be 900, 1,000 years. Isaiah says somebody that dies at, a, at a age 100 is dying as a child. And can you imagine the procreation that goes on? Can you imagine you, if you were in that situation, you could be bearing children for 900 years? Is that exciting? And so the population of the world will swell. But those people need to be saved just like people in this dispensation need to be saved. And there will be many who will not be saved. It boggles my mind. Christ himself is sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. We're ruling with him. We are the presidents, vice presidents. We are the governors, the mayors, the judges. We're everything in the government of our Lord Jesus. And we're in glorified bodies and people see us in glorified bodies. The whole world wants to go to Jerusalem every year for the Feast of Tabernacles. Zechariah chapter 14. So the whole world will see Jesus Christ ruling on his throne in Jerusalem, and yet many will rebel against him. At the end of the millennium, the devil is loosed and deceives numberless, innumerable people in the millennial kingdom, and they go against Jerusalem and attack it again. And the Lord simply destroys them all. But before all that, a marriage takes place. A marriage. I want to give you a couple of points on this tonight. In Revelation 19, verse 7, the groom and the bride are identified. That's my first point. The groom and bride are identified. The groom, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us be glad and rejoice. And give honor to him. The greatest honor you can give to the Lord Jesus is to believe on him and receive him as your Savior, Lord. If you don't get saved, if you're not born again, you will not be at this wedding. You will not be a part of the bride of Christ. So give him honor, for he is worthy of it. The God of heaven, one with his Father from eternity past leaves heaven and takes on a human body, born of a virgin, born without a sinful, depraved, corrupt nature that you have and that I have, lives a sinless, perfect life, and then gives that perfect, sinless body as a sacrifice for your sin. God demanded the death sentence for sin. Somebody's got to die for your sin. If you believe from the core of your being, you believe it with all your heart that Jesus Christ satisfied the payment of your sin, that he poured out his life's blood for your forgiveness and redemption. He died as you should die. He suffered on that cross everything you should suffer in the lake of fire. He bore the full weight and penalty of your sin and then rose again victorious over the grave to prove his claims were true. And to prove that God the Father was absolutely satisfied with the sacrifice for your sin. That's Isaiah 53, 11. God the Father will look upon the travail of the soul of his son and be satisfied. Sin's payment paid forever. Paid in full. 
nothing to add to it, nothing to take away from it. God the Father was absolutely satisfied with the sacrifice of Christ for your sin. Thus, God raised him from the dead. That is the import of Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt believe in thine heart the Lord Jesus and that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Romans 10, 9 goes far beyond just believing in a historical event called the resurrection. It is that you agree with God that God the Father was absolutely satisfied with the payment of Christ on that cross for your sin. And if God the Father was satisfied with it, I'm satisfied with it. I don't need to add church membership, sacraments, laws, rules, traditions. No church died for you. Jesus died for you. No denomination died for you. Jesus died for you. No set of traditions, laws, rules, sacraments died for you. Jesus died for you. This bap you have a baptistry? This baptistry didn't die for you. Jesus Christ died for you. And only he can save you. And so let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. Would you honor him by believing on him and being saved and receiving Christ as your personal Savior and Lord? Believing that what Christ accomplished on that cross satisfied God the Father and thus he raised him from the dead. And then it goes on to say, in verse 7, For the marriage of the Lamb is come. The Lamb is the Lord Jesus. You know that from the great inaugural address of John the Baptist in John 1.29. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. That's why John was called the greatest of all the prophets. All the other prophets simply prophesied about the coming of Christ. But John the Baptist inaugurated him. John the Baptist brought him through a prophetic baptism. Baptize me, John. No, you ought to be baptizing me. Suffer to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Who's the us? It's the triune God of heaven. What was the purpose of Christ's baptism? It was a prophecy. Through the death, burial, and resurrection, I will provide. The Godhead will provide the righteousness you need to be forgiven and go to heaven. And so Jesus Christ is the Lamb. For the marriage of the Lamb is come. And his wife, who is his wife? We're going to learn it is the church. The body of Christ in this location, the body of Christ in this location, the churches of the world that make up the body of Christ, that make up the marriage that make up the bride of Christ. If you are saved, you're born again tonight, you're part of that bride. We know that also, as Paul the Apostle taught it. Turn with me, if you'd like, to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 and verse 4. We could take it from verse 1 in the context, but we'll start at verse 4. Wherefore, my brethren, Romans 7, 4. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law, by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. There was that whole context of Romans 7, as we were once married to the law. You were in bondage to the law. 
that holy decalogue, which is God's standard of holiness. We were under its dominion. The law condemned us, but offered no release or deliverance. Through the law, we become guilty before God. Romans 3.19. Through the law is the knowledge of sin. God never gave the Ten Commandments that you should keep them. He knew you couldn't keep them. The whole purpose He gave them was to show you that you can't keep them. <laughs> There's never been a human being alive saving Christ in His humanity that ever kept the Ten Commandments. We are all violators, we are all transgressors, and thus all condemned. And that's the purpose of the law, to show us our need for a Savior. But when Jesus Christ died for us, the law died. And so in the context, when a husband dies, then that wife is free to marry another. So upon the death of the law in your life and mine, now we are free to marry another. And so... In a sense, we're widowers and widows because the law died. <laughs> Which allowed us then that you should be married to another, even to him who was raised from the dead. The Lord Jesus Christ is the bridegroom, and we are the bride. Again, it's presented to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2. Paul the Apostle, writing to the church at Corinth in southern Greece, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So Christ is the heavenly bridegroom. We is the body of Christ, the church. We are the bride. And the marriage then will take place. The prophecy will come true. You know that God the Father is married to Israel. Israel is the bride of the Father. The church is the bride of Christ. And so that's the identification. Now let's talk about the second point. The bride made ready. Preparations. Revelation 7. Revelation 19 and verse 7, the marriage is come, his wife hath made herself ready. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of preparation that goes into a wedding here on the earth, am I right? <laughs> and you choose a church, whether it's the groom's church, the bride's church, or another church, as in the case of my youngest son and his fiancée, the, the home church wasn't large enough for a wedding, so they had to find another church in Colorado Springs, Colorado, that would let them use the building because the home church was too small. And so, located a church, decorate the church. Oh my, look at all the decorations. Everything's on the chairs of the pews and the candelabras and all of the archways and all of the flowers and all of the fanfare and all the tool. All of these things. And then, of course, the reception hall. When I was pastor of First Baptist Church in Pasco, Washington. Our eldest daughter got married there. I was her pastor. I performed the entire ceremony, and our gymnasium became the reception hall. And my, my, we had ladies in the church that fully decorated. You hardly would ever notice that that was a gymnasium. 
they did stuff with the basketball uh, things. Uh, you, you, you go in there and say, man, that didn't even look like the same place. It's a lot of work, a lot of preparation, getting the pastor ready, getting the food ready. God be with us till we eat again. Baptist theme song. Got to have food. Oh, the wedding dress. That, that is so central, isn't it? My wife wore her mother's wedding dress. It was very uh, nostalgic and memorable. But the dress is so important, isn't it? You got to get the right kind of dress. And then you have the wedding party dresses, the bridesmaids. You have the groom and the groomsmen, and usually in tuxedos. Flowers, lots of flowers for the bouquet, boutonnieres for the men. Oh, and that morning, that dear, dear bride-to-be went to the hairdresser, to the salon, and she had every hair put perfectly in place, absolutely beautiful hairdo. And she had jewelry, and she puts makeup on. I mean, that bride looks as beautiful as she'll ever, ever be for the next 50 years. <laughs> Hey, Siri, once you got your man, are you going gonna to do that every, every day that you did for your wedding? Probably not. But that moment when she makes her entrance through the back door and the music plays and everybody stands, here she comes. A lot of preparation went into that. And everybody's crying. And as I said Sunday morning, as the pastor and the groom, we come out of the side room and we stand here at the front. Nobody stands, no music, no crying. But see, in an Eastern wedding, it's different. In the Eastern wedding, it's the groom who gets all the attention, not the bride. Again, Psalm 19:4, In them hath he set a tabernacle for the son, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. Picture of the Lord Jesus. The son itself is a picture and type of the Lord Jesus. And so the preparations for a wedding, well, there's preparations for this wedding, this heavenly wedding. You know, you've been preparing for it for years. Did you know that? However long you've been saved, you've been preparing for this wedding. Whether you've been saved 50 years or one year, you are preparing for this wedding. And let me tell you how. Notice in verse 8 of Revelation 19, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. You have in this one verse your position in Christ and your practice in Christ. You remember, we're going to rightly divide the word of truth, are we not? 2 Timothy 2.5. The problem, we have so much false doctrine, so much false teaching and because people don't know how to rightly divide the word of truth. The word of God is divided in covenants. The word of God is divided in dispensations. The word of God is divided. There is a line for Israel and there's a line for the church. So don't get into replacement theology. The church has not replaced Israel. There's two lines running through scripture. You cross them up, you become a replacement theology or what we call covenant theology. There's a line for relationship with God and there's a line for fellowship with God. You cross those up, you're going to believe you can lose your salvation. 
Those people who believe you can lose their salvation, that is their error. They're crossing those lines. They don't know how to separate in their mind what is relationship with God, which is eternal. God makes an eternal, covenant, unconditional relationship with everyone whom he saves, with every true child of God. You cannot unson a son. And Ephesians 2, 6 says that you're already seated in the heavenlies. There's not going to be a bunch of empty chairs in the heavenlies. <laughs> because God is totally outside the realm of time. Isaiah 57, 15. God sees all of human history all at once. It boggles our finite minds to think God is looking at 3000 B.C. right now. He's looking at 3000 A.D. right now. If you're a born-again, blood-bought, heaven-bound child of God, where are you going to be 3,000 A.D.? You're going, to be, you're going to be seated with Christ in the heavens. And there's not going to be people, what are all these empty chairs? Well, they, they, they were saved, but they lost their salvation. It's just not going to happen. You strip God of His glory. You strip Him of His sovereignty. You strip Him of His ability. To keep you saved, 2 Peter 1, 4, and 5. We are kept by the power of God. I'm not keeping myself. If i got to keep myself by working, that means I'm mixing grace and works. If I can lose my salvation by sinning, I have to keep it by working. And this is the great error of Seventh-day Adventists. They, they would tell you, well, we're saved by grace through faith. Yeah, but you have to stay saved by keeping the law. And they know it. No, there's a line running through Scripture. Relationship, relationship. And then there's another line running through Scripture. Fellowship, fellowship. You have union and you have communion. And you have them both in this eighth verse. Fine linen, clean and white. That's your position in Christ. When you are saved, you're born again, you will be clean and white as far as the purity that is going to come to your soul. When you get saved, the righteousness of Christ is placed in you. You're not righteous. Romans 3.10, there's none righteous, no, not one. And again, Romans 7.18, in my flesh, Paul said, dwells no good thing. It's not that I have done such great things to merit heaven. I haven't. I've done great things to merit hell, and so have you. But when you get saved, the righteousness of Christ is what the Bible calls imputed to you. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God hath made him, Christ, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that you might be made the righteousness of God in him. Again, Romans 10, 1 through 4, same thing. Philippians, Philippians 3, uh, 8 through 12, they're same truth. That when you're saved, you receive Christ as Savior and Lord. You haven't done that yet. Tonight's your night. And I call it the great exchange. The Lord Jesus will come inside of you and forgive and take away all your sin, and then he will give you his righteousness. It's like having a bank book. Do you have a bank book? You young people got a savings account? The bank book says you're broke. 
Nothing in your bank account. Zero. Zilch. Goose egg. And then someone comes along, not because you worked for it or earned it or deserved it, but they place a million dollars in your bank account. Now what does your bank book say? It says you're a millionaire. And you can start living like one. That's what happens when someone's saved. We come before the Lord broke. Zero. Goose egg. I have nothing of which to offer God. Furthermore, God cannot receive anything out of the heart I was born with. Romans 8, 8. Because we're born with a crooked, depraved, wicked heart. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17, 9. God says we can't even begin to fathom or understand the wickedness of our own hearts. You say, well, I, that, that can't be me. Look at these people over here, what they're doing. See, if you compare yourself with someone else, you'll always look good. You'll always find somebody out there more wicked than you are. But when we compare ourselves to God's holy standard, we all come short. And we're all wicked. And so the Lord comes into your heart and life and takes on all of that flesh and that wickedness. Another whole message is the circumcision of the heart that God performs. I don't have time to get into all that, but it is beautiful. We know about physical circumcision, but you know that when you get saved, there's a, a circumcision of your heart. And that's why who, those of you who are saved, you have, you, you're spiritually minded, unlike this world. You're in a totally different category than this world. We're just, we're just sinners saved by grace. That this world are sinners condemned. And their whole thoughts are worldly, secular, wicked, immoral things. And so, finally and white and clean. That's your standing before Jesus Christ. That is your position in Him. Your position and standing before God the Father is the same as the standing that Jesus Christ has with God the Father. Could Jesus Christ ever be lost? No, and neither can you. You have the same position that he has. And again, you know we could preach full messages on about 20 different things I've already given you tonight. And so you... Receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. You call upon Him to come into your heart and life. To save your poor, wretched, hell-bound soul. And He comes in. Removes all your sin and the penalty of sin and the power of sin. And He gives you His righteousness. And then we have presented for us our practice. Not only... Are we granted to be arrayed in fine linen, white and clean? For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. That's not imputed righteousness. That's what we have in our position. The righteousness of saints is our practice since the day we got saved. So look at it this way. Here's our position. It's a vertical situation. Here's my practice. It starts down here the moment I'm saved. And now we have what the Bible calls the process of sanctification. You have an initial sanctification. When God saves your soul, you are separated from this world system and its destruction. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty two. 32. 
And now the Spirit of God begins an amazing lifelong work as long as you're alive on the earth of progressive sanctification, sanctification, making you holy, making you more saintly, and conforming you to the image of Christ. That's the ultimate goal of sanctification. Romans 8, 29, is that you'd become like Jesus. <laughs> you will become like Christ. That's true spirituality. True spirituality is not whether you have facial hair, your back of your head touches your collar, whether you women wear dresses or pants, all those things. There's good standards we ought to have. There's good moral things. But that's not sanctification that leads you to Christ-likeness. The Spirit of God is going to make you like Jesus. How would Jesus respond in this situation? How would the Lord Jesus react to that person who just said that to me? How would he behave? How would he react? And so here's your position, here's your practice, and the Spirit of God brings you closer and closer and closer in your practice to your position. Every one of you who are saved in this room, every one of you are somewhere in this process. And every day, the Spirit of God works with us to bring us closer and closer and closer to our position. And so we have this position fine linen, clean and white. Then you have the fine linen, which is the righteousness of saints. Do you realize, technically, this is a plural? The righteousnesses of the saints. That's how we know it's dealing with our practice. From the time you got saved, the Spirit of God has been working in you and through you to produce fruit under the Lord God of heaven, to produce a life that honors Him, that loves Him, that serves Him. It's really not you, Romans 7, 18. It's your yieldedness. Yielding is the whole key. Check out Romans chapter 6 and verse 13. As we yield to the Spirit of God, if you're not quenching the Spirit, you're not grieving the Spirit, then you're a candidate to be filled with the Spirit and produce the fruit of the Spirit. The ninefold fruit. And then you'll pray in the Spirit. You'll give in the Spirit. You'll witness in the Spirit. You'll glorify, magnify Christ in the Spirit. There's a lot of things the Spirit of God is going to do in you and through you when you get saved. And so the righteousness is of the saints. Understand the implication. For the fine linen is the righteousnesses of the saints. As the wedding gown in an earthly wedding is very important, so are your garments at the wedding in heaven with Christ. Your garment will reflect and manifest your righteousnesses. You will literally wear the works of that you allowed the Spirit of God to produce in you and through you while you're here on the earth. <laughs> there will be a manifestation of some kind. It's mysterious. But however faithful you are to the Lord right now, no matter no, the, the, the level of your obedience and loyalty and love for Christ right now will be manifested in your clothing at this wedding. Does it really matter how you live as a born-again believer? Oh, yes. 
Well, I'm saved. That's all I care about. I've had people give me what I call low-life Christianity. Well, as long as I'm saved, I may, you may get a mansion, just a, back, a little cabin on the backside of heaven. That's all. That's ridiculous. Do you realize there's another verse in Scripture that also says there will be an eternal manifestation of your works here on the earth? It's in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 3. Just let me read it for you for sake of time. Daniel 12 verse 3. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. And they that turn many to righteousness, they'll shine like the stars forever and ever. They that be wise. My, Proverbs 11.30, he that winneth souls is wise. The wise in Daniel 12.3 are those that turn many to righteousness. That is witness. That is soul winning. You realize there will be an eternal manifestation. There will be different levels of shining on believers as they walk the streets of heaven. If you're not a witness for Christ, you're not a soul winner, you will look very dull walking the streets of heaven. But those that are wise, those that have a lifestyle of seeking to turn people from unrighteousness to the righteousness of Christ, you're, you're seeking to win people to Christ, they will have a shining like the stars in heaven. They will have some kind of eternal manifestation that when they were on this earth in their physical bodies, they were concerned about and burdened about lost souls and they were actively involved in evangelism. Does it really matter then how you live your Christian life? Yes. But let me give you this final point. The unsaved are invited to become part of the bride. Revelation 19, verse 9. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are they that are called. They're called to salvation. They're called to be part of the bride. And they respond. They believe. They receive. And they're called blessed. And may I just say again, if you're here tonight, you're not sure you're saved. You're not 100% sure that if you died tonight or the Lord comes tonight that you'll be with Christ in heaven. It's not, well, I'm 90%, I'm 75 I'm 50% sure. No, the Word of God was written, 1 John 5, 13, that you may know, K-N-O-W, that you may know that you have eternal life. That's the whole reason the Bible was written. These things have I written unto you, that believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. God doesn't want you wondering whether you're going to heaven or not. God doesn't want you saying, well, I think I'll go. I hope I'll go. I got as good a chance as anyone else. God wrote his word that you may know and have assurance of sins forgiven and the guilt is lifted. You have a home in heaven reserved there for you. And you're invited to that. And this is the final invitation of the Bible is in Revelation 22. Let me read that for you. Revelation chapter 22. And verse 17, the final invitation in the Bible. 
concerning Christ coming and concerning you becoming part of the bride. And the Spirit and the bride say, come. And let him, and let him that heareth say, come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, I don't see a lot of five-point Calvinism there. Well, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. So the Spirit of God right now, the Spirit of God moving around this room is inviting you to come. Come to the Lord Jesus. Isaiah 1.18, come now, God says. Come now and let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. The Lord Jesus said in John 6, 37, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and he that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest for your soul. No longer will you be in agitation. No longer will you be like the Catholic man, Mark, I led to the Lord in Northfield, Massachusetts. He lay awake every night in fear of dying and going to hell. Never do you have to fear that again. One, not one flame or drop of judgment will touch you or your soul forever and ever. What peace, what joy to know that you're saved. And the Spirit, the Spirit of God tonight moving on your heart and saying, come, come to Jesus. Receive him. Believe on him. And then who else is inviting you? And the spirit and the bride. You have the bride of Christ here tonight. And all of us who are part of the bride of Christ are saying to you, come. Are you parched? Are you thirsty spiritually? Are you searching for what and who is truth? Come and let the Lord Jesus satisfy you with his living water and save your soul. How about that tonight? Would you allow me or someone to take the Bible and show you plainly, clearly, lovingly what it means to receive Christ as Savior? See, the Lord will never force you. All we can do is invite you. That's all the Spirit of God does. He invites you to the Savior. The Spirit of God leads you to Christ, and Christ brings you to the Father. That's how the triune God works in salvation. So right now, the Spirit of God is in this room, and He's talking to your heart, and He's inviting you to come, but He'll never force you. The Lord Jesus will never force you. He says in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him, and he with me. In other words, have a personal relationship with him, and him with me. He said, I stand and I knock. The Lord will never force his way into your life. The doorknob of your heart is on the inside, and only you can open it. And you open it in an act of faith, and you welcome the Lord Jesus into your life. You refuse him no longer. You resist him no longer. You now open the door of your heart and invite him in and welcome him into your life to save your soul. You've never done that. The Spirit of God says, come. We as the bride say, come.